I think a mismatch between what we would like human nature to be and what it actually is. The reality is as humans, we don't think the way we assume that we think. You know, knowledge is not the, the sum total of our experiences, everything we've read and heard that sort of makes up what we view as true. Our concepts of truth and certainty are so different to that. The path to knowledge is different. And until we unpack what makes up our minds, like how we arrive at that point of certainty, it's really hard to understand how to change people's thinking and change people's minds. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question. Would you consider yourself to be stubborn? Do you bristle at the thought of change and dig your heels in, even when presented with undeniable logic? Now, for most of us, our instincts are probably to answer no to that question. You know, it's everyone else that's stubborn, right? It's the people on the internet who are blatantly wrong in their point of view, the family member who just won't shift position regardless of how much evidence you present them with, the colleague who cannot let go of how it used to be done and embrace the path forward that just seems so perfectly clear. Or maybe to survive in an age of more information, disruption, ideas, opinions, facts, news and fake news than we have ever had to digest before, we have all become more entrenched and more stubborn in our thinking simply as a way to survive. My guest today believes that not only are we more mind-stuck than we have ever been, but the process of how we go about changing minds, including our own, is fundamentally flawed. Michael McQueen is a multi-award winning speaker, trend forecaster and best-selling author of nine books. Having helped some of the world's most successful brands like Pepsi, MasterCard, BP and Cisco navigate disruption and lead in times of extreme change. He has also just released his latest book, Mindstuck, Mastering the Art of Changing Minds, which completely flips on its head so much of what we assume to be true about exactly how we influence in a world where silos and stubbornness are now the norm. This conversation was a long time in the making and in it we dive into why we are all more mindstuck than we have ever been and how accepting that fact opens the door to a whole new toolkit of influence. The concept of the inquiring mind versus the instinctive mind and why we currently spend 40%, 40% of our time trying to convince the wrong one. Why logic isn't enough and in order to influence at the highest possible level, we need to take a whole different approach to persuasion. The paradox of choice. You know, this one blew my mind. How giving people the opportunity to opt out almost guarantees that they will opt in. And finally, five counterintuitive strategies to move people from mind stuck to open to new ideas. 
including why real trust and persuasion always begins with first having the courage to be vulnerable. As you will hear, I have known Michael for many years. He is genuinely one of the finest, most curious and insightful humans I have the pleasure of calling a friend. However, as an author, speaker and global expert on future trends, I've also seen him professionally and personally wrangle with the question, they have all the information, I just don't understand why nothing is changing. Sound familiar? This book, his research, these tools are the answer to that question. Now, for those of you who are ready to take your journey in influence to the next level, don't forget, hop on my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to make a cup of coffee. On that note, sit back, stride on, caffeine up, and enjoy the incredible insights of Michael McQueen. Welcome to the podcast, Michael McQueen. Thank you so much. Lovely to spend some time. Lovely to spend some time with you as well. And, you know, we have, I feel like at the moment I'm interviewing people that I've known for a really long time, which is both beautiful and, you know, it makes me a little nervous because you just, you know, I want to do justice to, to everything that, you know, all the mastery that I know exists within your mind. So I feel like I have to give caveats in this conversation where I'm just going <laughs> to hop all over the space. Now we're obviously, you know, you have a new book coming out called Mind Stuck. And mm -hmm. that's what we're going to be diving into today. Yep. But what I want to what I want to kick off with is the way that I usually start the podcast, which is to ask you if there's one idea, and I'm pretty sure it'll be related because you're so in deep with this content right now. One idea that's just been having a huge impact on your thinking or the way that you perceive the world right now, because, you know, you are on the very cutting edge of what you do. And so you will have found these ideas way before they reach the rest of us. I had a conversation about this yesterday, actually, this idea of how we measure human knowledge. There's been lots of talk even in the last few months about um, Neuralink. You know, can we put things in people's brains to monitor their thinking and make us better humans? And it's funny, I think that the, the assumption we have is that you can actually monitor human thought by just looking at the brain. And yet that doesn't account for all the other things that go into what, firstly, what makes us a human, but also what actually shapes our thinking. There are so many other faculties we use. Um, intuitive faculties, even the no notion of consciousness and the soul, you know, these don't fit into just the very narrow concept of our, of our hardware being in our brain. And so I think this is going to be a very interesting flashpoint as we look at where AI intersects with some of these brain implants and the whole notion of understanding how we think. That fascinates me at the moment because it's moving relatively quickly and we're all talking about can AI take over what we do as humans? What do we do as humans that AI can't? And at the core of it, so much of this comes back to as uniquely human things like intuition and, and human judgment. These things that are actually often not in our brain, it's in our gut and in our heart. And that notion of embodied cognition, the fact that we think with our, with our entire beings, not just our brains, that's what's been fascinating me lately. Well, we, we do. I'm just, 
I'm just feeling it in my body as you're talking, you know, that we, I feel it in my gut, you know, when we use mm. that language so much, you know, I've just, I've just got a gut feel or, yeah. you know, this is what my heart tells me to do. We, we even use it in our language and yet, which is what we're going to be talking about today, all too often when we try and convince other people, we try and influence other people or even influence ourselves, we just stick right with the head. You know, we stick with... I'm going to give you as much information as I can. I'm going to research this to, you know, nth degree to try and get you to change your mind or change my own mind. Let's talk about that. Let's dive into that. What does, let's start with mind stuck. What does, what does it mean to be mind stuck? Like, I guess at the core of the concept in this book is this idea that we are more stubborn, more obstinate. Um, more sort of fixed in our thinking than we've ever been. And there's lots of reasons for that. But I think you know, the overarching theme is this is a book about the psychology of stubbornness. You know, why don't people change even when they want to, even when they know they should, even when they're presented with the most watertight logic and evidence as to why they should change? What is it that stops even smart people not doing that? You know, why do we get sort of stuck in patterns of thinking that don't serve us or the greater purpose that we we know that we're passionate about? So. That's the sort of core part of this book. And I think what's been really interesting is just to look at, I think the mismatch between what we would like human nature to be and what it actually is. The reality is as humans, you know, we, we, we don't think the way we assume that we think, you know, knowledge is not the, the sum total of our, of our experiences, everything we've read and heard that sort of makes up what we, what we view as true. Um, our concepts of truth and certainty are so different to that. The path to knowledge is different. And until we unpack what makes up our minds, like how we arrive at that point of certainty, it's really hard to understand how to change people's thinking and change people's minds. That's been really the focus for this book. You know, you, you said something really powerful there, which is we don't think the way that we think that we think. We don't make up our minds the way that we think that we make up our minds. Um, and you use this great phrase in the book that we, we use 20, 20th century methods to shape 21st century minds talk to me talk to me about that what is this mismatch between the way that we think that persuasion works and the way that it actually works yeah so i think firstly first if you look at this whole notion of what's what's the 21st century mind like firstly we we have to make up our minds so quickly now and about so many things i mean the reality is and i think the exposure to so much information that we now have means that we're, we, we're, we're expected to form a view and have an opinion about so many issues about you know, the ethics of where we buy our clothes. Do we get vaccinated? Do we wear a mask? You know, we've had this has been the culture war discussion the last few years. And like, we're almost expected you've got to pick a side. You can't stay neutral. Everyone's got to pick a side, form a view, and then defend that view. And so I think in the 21st century, that is one of the hallmarks of our ages. We're expected to make up our minds so quickly and so definitively, and then defend that so rigidly as well. But I think the other challenge with this is we've got a prevailing notion that humans can be persuaded if you just give them better evidence or better logic. And we, we've, we've inherited that from the Enlightenment era, this notion where the assumption was that if we could just use rationality and we could actually sh throw off the shackles of you know, religious dogma and superstition, which had you know, guided humanity for centuries, and we could actually arrive at really intelligent thought. We've inherited that and thought and assumed that if we can just give someone know better evidence they'll see reason and if they don't see reason it's because they haven't got enough information if we've just got to give them some more information then they'll come around you know and, and we've obviously seen that doesn't work and yet we persist in doing it you know government education campaigns corporate change strategies is often about giving people better evidence better knowledge in the hope that they'll see reason and 
they so often don't. The harder we push, the more they dig their heels in. And this has been one of the really interesting things to study is this, this topic of reactance or the backfire effect. The more evidence you give, the more logic you give, the more people tend to resist and dig their heels in. Which is ironic, really. And I, I've, I've heard that before, that the more, the more someone tries to change our minds, the less open we are to changing our minds. What happens there? Like, what, what happens in our physiology or our psychology that, that makes, a, makes that backfire, makes the primary method that we use to change people's minds have the absolute opposite effect? I think we've got to look at so much of what guides our thinking. And if you look at, you know, for instance, the limbic system, the limbic system is the part of our brains. And it's not just our brains, it's our minds, because the mind and the brain are not the same thing. The mind is bigger than the brain. And so if you look at the part of our minds, which is often related to the limbic system, it's, it deals with things like emotion and it deals with our processing of tribal instincts. It's our fight and flight instinct, for instance, and particularly the amygdala and the role that it plays. The challenge is our, our, the focus for our limbic system is self-preservation. It's about security. And so it's really good at keeping us safe because it identifies threats fast. And that's worked for us for millennia really well in terms of actually preserving our physical safety. The challenge is our limbic system perceives intellectual threats the same way it perceives physical ones. The moment there's a threat to what I believe to be true, my identity, who I am, the hackles go up. We have what's often called, often referred to you know, as amygdala hijacks, you know, where essentially our amygdala takes over and we go on the defensive or on the fight, as opposed to actually being able to calmly and rationally consider. And inter interestingly, there's been some great research done looking at how, which parts of our brain fire up when we're exposed to evidence or ideas that challenge our identity-based beliefs. Um, and it's interesting. So if you, if you share with people evidence that, I that is counterintuitive or attacks their beliefs, the part of their brain that fires up is not the frontal lobe rational stuff, it, it's that limbic system. And in fact, the more deeply held the belief is, the faster the response times of our brain to that information. In other words, we're not even really considering it. We're just, we, it's almost like we can't. You know, we can't even consider this because it, it attacks something that to us is an assault on our safety. I mean, Edward de Bono put it best when he said, you know, the human mind can only see what it's prepared to see. And for so many of us, we're not prepared to see things that are confronting because of what that might mean. If, if this one thing is not true, what else is not true about me and what I've been told? That unraveling effect is incredibly frightening, so we just double down. You know, I've heard you talk about the psychology of the stubborn here, and that just feels like what you're describing right now, which is the sense of stubbornness. And in a world where we have access to so much information and we, you know, we have all of these resources where we could refine our opinions, where we can adjust what we believe to be true, where we can evolve and change. And I, again, ironically, what it's created is even more stubbornness because there are even more, more and more and more attacks on things that we've already made up our minds about. And as you said, that we feel like it in our brain somewhere relate directly to our safety. How, let's start, because there's two ways to come at this conversation, right? There's the first way, which is everybody, everybody else is stubborn and I'm just fine. Thank you very much. Oh, of course. Yeah. Which I'm I open think is for most of us. <laughs> yes, yeah. For most yeah. of us, how we feel. Um, and then there's the other part of the conversation, which is acknowledging even in the slightest way that actually, I can get pretty stubborn. I can get pretty stuck. I can get pretty defensive. I can hold on to things that may no longer serve me or not even be true anymore. 
let's start with let's start with other people and we hit upon the stubbornness with other people how do we take a step back and come at it from another direction i think the first thing is to realize that the reason people are often stubborn is fear and it's not fear in the way that we often think so if you're presenting someone with a new idea we often assume that the reason people don't change, either change their behavior or their beliefs is because they're afraid of change. And we're told that that's the, the conventional wisdom is that people are afraid of change. Whereas some of the most recent research around this, looking at human instincts, is that actually we're not, we're not really afraid of change, we're afraid of loss. And so the question is, if you're presenting someone with an idea, a new perspective or a new initiative to get on board with and they're resisting it, take a step back and go, what's, what's the loss involved here? What are they afraid of losing? And there's three primary losses that we've got to be really careful of when we're asking people to change their mind. Because taking on a new viewpoint isn't just about taking something else on, it's also putting something down. There is, there is a loss. There's genuinely loss of moving away from a viewpoint that, that may feel really safe and really familiar to us. So the three losses, I mean, the first would be the loss of pride. You know, that sense of, you know, everyone wants to be, feel like they're, they're respected and respect worthy. And there's a great quote by a guy named Ed Coper who said, you know, we must avoid the tendency of making people have to admit they were stupid in order to admit they were wrong. And we so often do this. We, we give people evidence and almost back them into a corner where they've got to admit that, you know what, I, I was an idiot. It's like, well, the moment you do that, dignity means human beings will do anything to save face. And this is a, content, a concept we always hear about from an Asian context perspective or cultural standpoint, but it's actually all of us. You know, we don't want to be embarrassed or ashamed. And sometimes We've just got to give people space to save face. That's such an important thing. The second one would be the fear of losing power. You know, if I've got a certain way of doing things that, that benefits me either financially or benefits me in terms of status, the moment that you try and um, erode that away, I'm going to fight it at every point. And the last would be the fear of the loss of certainty. You know, this notion that what if I have to move away from what I know to be true and has been true for a long time, but maybe is no longer true, that's a, that's a really... That's a scary place. You know, I love in Adam Grant's book, Think Again, he says, you know, we, we favor the comfort of certainty over the discomfort of doubt. And he goes on to say that, you know, we laugh at people who use Windows 95. And yet the reality is many of us hold views that we formed in 1995. Because, you know, being in between beliefs where I'm not quite sure that what I used to believe is true, but I'm not quite sure about the next belief yet. That, that sort of feeling of free fall is very scary for human beings psychologically and in every sense. And so often in our, in our desire to get back to safety, we retreat back to the belief we had, even, if, even though we've got this nagging sense that actually it's not as true as we once thought it was, but it's safe. And so trying to deal with those, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of pride, the fear of a loss of power, that's where we've got to start if we want to get people to actually be open-minded and willing to take on sort of new perspectives. I'm also thinking there about the loss of tribe. You know, for a lot of people, if you, if you look at social beliefs, um, community beliefs, uh, to walk away from that belief means walking away from potentially your tribe. It could mean at a, at a, whatever level distancing yourself from your family or your family's belief system, which then could distance you from your family. It could be your community. It could be your friends. It could be your peers that all your peers believe this one thing and you're starting to suspect that it may not be true, but that is going to cause a lot of friction between you and where you've got to and the people that are holding you there. How do we, I know you call it lessening the loss. How do we lessen the loss? And we'll, we'll get into how we lessen the loss for ourselves, but how do we lessen the loss for other people? 
I think the first thing, so if you look at, um, for instance, the loss of pride, how do you create that space where people feel able to change their minds safely, you know, creating almost that sense of psychological safety. One of the best tools I've come across um, is, is called feel felt found, where you acknowledge how someone feels. Like, I, I know how you feel. I understand that perspective. You know, I've, I've felt the same way. or I know people who felt the same way or it's really common to have felt the same way. What I've found or what others have found is that way you're sort of guiding through the process of acknowledging where they're at and why it's okay. I'm um, acknowledging that it's, they're not uncommon or alone, but also pointing them to a different perspective, but giving them the agency, giving them the freedom to change their perspective. And I think in terms of giving people safe to space, safe face, that that's so important that we actually guide them through a process where they don't feel backed into a corner because even if they've been convinced, even if you've sort of, you've won, and we'll use the, we'll talk about this whole concept of how do you win an argument? And can you actually even win an argument? I heard this great insight recently that in any relationship where one person wins, the relationship loses. And so it can never be a case of, of, of triumphing over someone else. But if you got to the point where they're convinced and they want to change their mind, if doing so means that they, they feel embarrassed or ashamed, they'll actually often not change their mind, even though they actually want to and have been persuaded. So I think now that's the first thing is actually just giving people that sense of you know, space to actually change their mind on their own. The other one would be to involve them in the process. Ask people for advice. You now, so what would you do if? You know, give them, you know, put them in the driver's seat. It's amazing where if people feel like they've got that sense of agency, that can make all the difference. And even this can be really simple. If you want to put in place a change agenda within an organization, keep some, some symbols of the past, titles, the way things function, just things that give the the sense that there's a continuity from the past, even though actually a lot is changing. Because you want to give a nod to heritage. You want to give a nod to the people that the things that people find certainty in. Um, and what you want is you want change to feel like a gentle improvement rather than something that chucks away everything from the past. Because that's again the way that people sort of get their their backs up. Like, you know, how dare you throw everything out from the past? This is who we are and how we've done things. It's like, okay, how do we maintain the things that matter, but make change feel like a, a gentle improvement? And there's a lot of empathy in that as well. I'm feeling, you know, to have empathy for the people, for people who are trying to change, who are willing to change. Let's put the spotlight back on our, ourselves for a moment. You know, how do we lessen, how do we have empathy for ourselves in the process of change? And how do we lessen the loss when we feel like I could make the shift? I know that this shift is important. I know that it's coming. I know that I have to. But right now it's safer and easier if I just stay where I'm at. I think the first would be to acknowledge just how normal that is and to acknowledge the fear that's involved and take yourself back and go, okay, what are the things that are non-negotiables for me? There are some things you, you'll never change your mind about because they're part of your value system. Um, so the difference between values and viewpoints is important because values don't need to change, but viewpoints over time must. I think that's just, that's part of growing and, and adapting with time. So start with what's what's unchangeable because that gives you that sense of certainty. This is what I'm standing on that is solid. Now, what is negotiable? What can I be open to? And if you if you butt up against an issue where you know within yourself that no evidence would ever convince me otherwise, press in there. Why? What is it about this that I feel I've got that bristly flinch response to? What is the fear that I've got behind this? And you know, by all means, you want to stand on principle, but if you're being held back simply because you're afraid of changing, that's that's a place that I don't think any of us, if we're honest with ourselves, intellectually honest, we don't want to ever stay there because that's what stops us growing. And so be aware of those moments where you 
your pulse races, your, your face gets flushed, you know, and we're all in those moments where you have an argument or a debate with someone or an issue comes up and you can feel it rising up in you. Watch that, listen to that. And in the moment, it's really hard because your amygdala is firing, your body is in fight mode. But afterwards, grab a piece of paper, grab a journal, sit down and go, I just want to unpick that. What's beneath that? What's beneath that? What's beneath that? Try and dig to the bottom of what the, what the point of resistance is because the issue is not the viewpoint or the, the opinion. It's, it's the sense of identity behind it. As much as we can uncouple our ideas from our identity, that, that's, that the more we can do that, the better we'll be. Because you know, we're, not our, we're not our opinions. Our identity has got to be separate from our opinions if we're going to be intellectually um, flexible. I love that concept. We are not our opinions. You know, we have to separate our opinions from our identity. Can you give me, and I know that you are very conscious of doing this in your own life. Can you give me an example in your world where you felt that kind of bristle? Because I can think of some in mine, where you felt that bristle come up. Yeah. You know, like, no, yeah. I will defend this. Yep. And then you walk away at the end and you go, you know, if I was so, if I was so certain, if I, yep. if that was my lived experience, if that was my truth, why was I so defensive of it? Yeah. What yep. is it in me that has connected that to my sense of self and my sense of safety? Yeah. Give me one from, from your world, because I know you're uh, ever changing. Yeah. I mean, there's always those things, isn't it? Where you, in the moment you react in a certain way. And then afterwards you think, gosh, what was that about? You know, what, what, why was that such a disproportionate response? Um, and I had this experience and we all had this, I think in the middle of COVID because COVID was the time where, um, tempers ran hot. You know, everyone had opinions about mask mandates and vaccinations and all these you know, alternative therapies to you know, treat COVID. And I was in a, um, a WhatsApp group with a group of friends. And this is a group that's been friends for years. It's a high degree of trust in this group. And, and it, like every WhatsApp group, there's always the funny memes that get bounced around. It's one of those sort of groups. And um, one of the memes that was bounced around, this is probably in, in late 2021, early 2022. And it was this meme that was, um, you may have even seen it too, it was like, if all the people who call the rest of us sheep could stop taking um, livestock dewormer, that'd be great. You know, this idea of, you know, all, all the conspiracy theorists, which is what the label was, talk about ivermectin being, you know, a treatment for COVID. And yet they're the ones saying that all of the people getting vaccinations are all sheep and they really should do their own research. These were the things we kept hearing. And so I sort of, I jumped on this because I thought it was actually quite a clever, funny meme. Anyway, one of my mates jumped in and said, yeah, actually, but probably should check the data on ivermectin, there's some really interesting stuff happening in India right now. And I noticed within me this bristled response of like, no, that's not what people like us think. We're people who trust science and vaccinations. And, you know, we're not, we're not the people that, that push back and look for the conspiracy. And Bill Gates is trying to put microchips in us and all this. And, but I couldn't dismiss it outright because he was someone who wasn't like that. He was a thoughtful, measured person. I'm like, and I noticed within myself, I clicked on the link. And instead of actually being open to the information that was in this link, I looked for every hole. I looked for every reason I didn't trust it. You know, I wasn't even, I, I, I look back and I'm almost ashamed at just how unwilling to consider. Now, the truth was the information was flawed. The science was not very sensible and it was an unproven technique, unproven treatment. It still is. But I, I knew within myself, my, like my hackles went up. I was hot and flushed. And it was funny when one, one of the other group, one of the members of this WhatsApp group jumped in and then debunked this article entirely because he's more scientifically minded than I am. It was funny how I noticed with myself go, oh, thank goodness, I can retreat to what I already thought was true. I didn't have to, didn't have to change. And I was so ashamed of myself, my inability to actually consider. I want to talk a little bit about your journey and what led you to this space before we go any deeper. 
you know, you have been a futurist for many years and, you know, the definition of a futurist being somebody who looks at the research, looks at the data, goes out to the edges, to the places where, you know, not a lot of us spend any time and brings back, you know, this is what we can see. This is where this is potentially going. Here are some potential avenues, trends. Um, and one of your big frustrations, and I know that you and I have talked about this before, is that you would talk to large organizations, incredibly intelligent people about what was happening and the changes that were coming. And a lot of them would say that they were going to change, that they were going to shift things, that they were going to change their minds about certain things. And you'd sit in rooms with them and all these plans would be made, but really nothing much would happen. This psychology of stubborn would kick in, this fear of loss would kick in. Talk to me about that. What did you, how did you see that play out? And then how did that lead you here? I think this whole notion of sort of studying where society is going has been like what I've done for two decades now. So I initially started off looking at generational change. So the whole theme of millennials or Gen Y versus baby boomers. And so often that was a case of trying to persuade organizations to realize that now that the new generation coming through were different and they were, there were you know shifts in values and attitudes. And that was, that was an uphill battle because a lot of leaders and organizations said, I oh, don't know, no, they, they'll, when they grow up, they'll be just the same as us. They're just baby boomers waiting to grow up, you know, that whole notion. So that was a really challenging thing as a young person. So I started doing this, you know, on global stages with big brands at 24 years of age. So that was really tricky to hold that space in front of groups of people much older than me and try and just encourage them to consider the world was changing in ways that they probably would ignore, they'd rather ignore or they'd rather not acknowledge because it is, it's, it's, it's stuff that is new and uncomfortable. Over time, the scope has broadened to look at not just demographic change, but technological change, societal change. Obviously, in the last few years, a lot of things around disruption and AI and robotics and all the themes related to that. I think this has been my great frustration is that I can go into an organization, give them a clear picture of where the world's going. Um, and often you can, you can persuade those in the room. They get it. And at the end, they go, my goodness, I now I see what's coming. I get a sense of what we need to do. I've got a plan, but how do I get my board on, on board with the idea? I mean, they're the ones that control whether we can do this or not. Or you've got someone in middle management saying, I've got to get my executive team on board with this idea. Or it's, I'm, I'm working with a leadership team. They're like, we've got to get our team on board with this change. And we've tried this a little bit and they just, they will not budge. And that was, that would come up consistently in the Q&A times at the end of my keynote sessions. And I'm, I remember finding myself at a loss be like, yeah, yeah, I know it's hard, isn't it? I'm not quite sure exactly what would work. Try this, try this, try this, but they felt like shallow suggestions. And so the more I, that kept question kept coming up time and time again, I'm like, I've got to dig into this. This is, this, is, this, is, this is the issue. I mean, I can tell people what's changing, how they need to change, but if I don't give them the tools to then affect the change, I'm only doing half my job. And so that's sort of what's, what's led to this whole process of understanding you know, what's happening in terms of what makes people change or not. And then the last few years, of course, we've gone through such a fractious period in society where we've seen what was actually already under the, it was under the surface in society, this very tribalized, polarized view of the world, but it was hidden by polite sensibilities. And then COVID happened and it all just blew up into the open. And you, you know, combine that with Trump and everything that happened in the States and the culture wars. So, that was when it became clear that this is time to write the book. This is not just organizational change that I need to focus on, but just like understanding where society is heading. How do we stay together rather than tearing ourselves apart? Because the stakes are so high. We've got to figure out how to meet in the middle, convince each other to see the world from a different perspective, because that's how we grow. And that's what we're not doing very well at the moment. Mm. And I, you know, I know you and I've known you for, for many years and 
you know, I know you went through, down this rabbit hole with this topic and, you know, to hear you tell the story that way, I think it's easy for people to kind of underestimate how seriously you take that quest, yeah. you know, and how much it troubled yeah. you and troubles you that the stakes are so high and we yeah. are becoming more divided and more stuck, more mind stuck than we have ever yeah. been. And those two things coming together in parallel means that we can't make the changes that we need to make going forwards. And so, you know, you went down this rabbit hole, you're, you're researching this, you committed a lot of time to going way, way back through to like Aristotle years, like yeah. what worked, what works then, yeah. you know, how have things shifted? Have we changed? And I think one of the big things that came out of that research that really stuck me is that logic is not enough. Yeah. That we live in an age where logic just doesn't work. Yep. Why? why not? <laughs> I speak on behalf of all the frustrated people in the world. Why not? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, first, if we look at that sort of the ancient um, foundations of the whole notion of influence, and what, what Aristotle talked about as rhetoric, that was the idea of studying what it takes to influence other people. So sort of the three pillars or three foundations of, of rhetoric were logos, pathos and ethos. So logos is about, you know, using logic and evidence and trying to convince people's logical faculties. And then pathos was about appealing to emotion, but it's ethos that we've overlooked. And that's where we've got to really come back to, like we've, we've lost the ability to use ethos. And ethos is argument by credibility, an argument by trust, um, argument by reputation. So who you are convinces more than what you say. And so what is it that takes people, what, what is it that we need to do if we're going to have ethos with those we want to have influence over? Because here's the key, influence or your ethos is never owned by you. Ethos is owned by the people you're trying to, um, to, to influence, whether they perceive you as trustworthy or credible, that's where the battle is won or lost. And so I think coming back to some of those foundational things and understanding what it really takes to shift another person and just giving logic and evidence and even appealing to emotion, again, they, they have a role to play, but they're not enough. Looking at why, they don't, why they're not enough is probably the thing that's been most fascinating in the book. So um, that one of the models that I use consistently throughout the book is this idea that you and I are actually in two minds, always. You know, so you know, we often use that term, I'm of two minds or I'm in two minds about a certain decision. And that's more than just a saying. That's actually, that's a fundamental truth. We actually think with two very different faculties, essentially. So, and if you look historically, so, you know, Plato talked about these two minds being like the rational charioteer trying to rule in the, un the unruly horse of emotion. Then you had um, Freud talked about the conscientious versus the, you know, the, the self-focused self ego. But the most recent expression of this has been with Daniel Kahneman's work, so Behavioural Economics 101, which is System 1 versus System 2 thinking. So those listeners who've read any of that stuff will be familiar with that. The language I use in this book is the two minds that we tend to operate with is our instinctive mind and our inquiry mind. Our inquiry mind is all the rational frontal lobe stuff we use when it comes to thinking and making decisions. The instinctive mind is that limbic driven, often about at the back of the brain, near the brainstem, that sort of very fight and flight type emotion re regulating part of our mind. The tricky thing is, so in Zoe Chance, I don't know if anyone who is listening has read Zoe Chance's book called Influence Is Your Superpower. Brilliant book. She's I love amazing. Zoe's book. She's been on the podcast before as a guest. She's go. absolutely incredible. Um, and Zoe was actually kind enough to write an endorsement for this book. She's just, she's a gem. She's done some really cool research in this space um, based at Yale. Um, and what she says is that actually 95% of our opinions, our viewpoints, our beliefs are formed by our instinctive mind right at the back here. 
So it never gets to the point where we're considering rationally or logically whether something is a good idea or worthwhile information. We make the decision at an instinctive level. Then what we do is we use our inquiring mind, the rational parts, to essentially retrofit reason. We've already decided emotionally or instinctively what we think is true, and then we retrofit reason so we can, we can um, firm it up and say, this is what I believe to be true. And the challenge is most of us speak to the, to the inquiring mind. We give the evidence, we give the logic, we give the graphs. And the problem is, if the decision isn't made there, there's no point trying to influence there. And um, Jonathan Swift, the Irish essay, has put it best when he said, it's, it's impossible to reason a person out of a position they were never reasoned into. And most of our beliefs, we didn't arrive at via reason. They were instinctive. And so understanding the instinctive mind, that's sort of, that's where the game is really at. So how do we influence the instinctive mind? How do we have an influence over, you know, opinions that were never, you know, that we're never reasoned into. Yes. I mean, the first thing is to understand how the instinctive mind like arrives at those points of certainty. So when you arrive at a point of decision or opinion or belief, how does our instinctive mind do that? It's really important we sort of take a few steps back and understand that. So in the book, I look at sort of the three lenses um, that our, our sort of our instinctive mind uses when it's evaluating whether we agree with something or not and how we arrive at those points of belief. So the first is identity. Um, the second would be ideology. The third is intuition. And these three, it's almost like, you know, if you think of them in the world of music, you know, three notes together that, that resonate or make a chord, you know, that's, that's where beautiful symmetry in music is made. And when it comes to beliefs, it's the same. When these three things work in symmetry, that's when, you know, you use a phrase like, it resonated with me. It struck a chord. It actually did. Because those three things, when they work together, that's when our most dominant beliefs are formed. And that's when the strongest ones are formed. So... And I think the best way to understand these three is to look at the three questions essentially that characterize these, these three views. So if you look at the question of identity, um, when identity comes into view, our instinctive mind is asking the question, what do people like me think about something like this? People in my tribe who agree with me and identity is so important in, in determining whether we agree or don't agree, whether we can consider information or not consider it, whether it's um, something we're open to, or whether it's a threat because identity is such a core part of how we arrive at these, these notions of truth or untruth. Um, and I think too, like, there's a great um, piece of research, I should say, it's not great, it's actually quite worrying, I think. So re research, University of Calgary found that three quarters of us would rather spend time with a stranger who agrees with our beliefs than a friend who doesn't, which speaks volumes, this idea of us wanting to just be around people and ideas that, that match our tribe. And so identity is massive. I mean, ideology is the second one, which is all about belief. You know, does this new piece of information, does this evidence, does it gel with what I've already decided is true? You know, again, that Edward de Bono quote, this idea that the mind can only, can only see what it's prepared to see. And so often we've got these beliefs, beliefs that, you know, we, we don't want to ever reconsider. And um, Daniel Gilbert, who's a psychologist at Harvard, puts it uh, really well in, there was an article for the New York Times. He said, it's like when you step on the scales in the morning, bathroom scales, if it tells you the weight that you want to hear, you'll hop straight off and go, the scales are accurate, brilliant, awesome, straight into the shower. Whereas if you get on the, in the, on the scales and they give you an answer you don't want to hear, um, you hop back off, you get back on, make sure you weren't overweighting one foot or the other. It's like when information doesn't match what we believe or want to be true, we scrutinize it. Whereas if it Oh, I will move, move the scales. Move the scales to another room just in case the floor. Yeah. Correct. And so we do that with ideas as well. I mean, seeing is not believing. We like to think that seeing is believing. It's not. You know, believing is often seeing. What we believe 
is you know determines what we can see. And the last one around intuition, this is what I found really interesting. So intuition, the way that our our instinctive mind arrives at points of certainty is often it doesn't have as much to do with again what's happening in our brain hardware wise, but it's our heart, it's our gut. And if you look at the heart, we've got forty thousand neurons in our heart. Our heart releases oxytocin, the social bonding hormone. We've only discovered that just in the last few years. We often thought that oxytocin was a brain generated thing. Our heart is responsible for it too. I mean, in the gut, my goodness, the gut's got 500 million neurons. So brain gut research is fascinating when you look at how quickly our guts are actually synthesizing and making sense of what we're experiencing and seeing. And that informs our brain in ways that we're not even consciously aware of. So intuition is that sense of we just know something's right, even if we don't know why. And so the question that guides, I guess, intuition is this idea of, you know, does, does this match up, this idea or this information, does it match up with just what feels like it's true or not true? And so those three things, you know, ideology, identity, and intuition, that, that's essentially what determines whether our instinctive minds can even consider an idea or not. I just want to drill into ideology and identity yeah. for a second, a little bit further, because it feels to me like those questions, which are just gold, by the way, those questions hold the key to yeah. what needs to come next. And so, for example, um, identity, I, I think identity was, you know, do people like me believe things like this? Yeah, people like that's me right. agree yeah. With yeah. This? If you wanted to persuade or influence from an identity point of view, you would find examples of people like you who have done things like this yep. that were successful or people like you who have um, adopted these belief systems and it's worked out just great and have had incredible success yep. and then with the um with the ideology one correct me if i'm if i'm wrong here but a way of persuading ideology might be you know what i know you to be mm. and i always find this this sentence really useful from a leadership point of view obviously it has to be true for you it has to come from a place of integrity yeah. but you know i know you to be i know yep. you to be a really compassionate you know, incredible human being. And so, you know, what I'm about to share with you, I want you to look at it through just through that lens, because this is who I know you to be. And this is why I'm, I yep. wanted to have this conversation with you, Yep. you know, to persuade and influence from those two perspectives, it gives you the glory of the questions is it gives you a really clear path forward. Have I interpreted that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the idea of reminding people who they are is, is so powerful because it often appeal it appeals to shared values and one of the things that you believe to be true and if there's a mismatch between what you say you believe to be true and what you're actually doing that's the fertile soil for persuasion because none of us like cognitive dissonance that idea that our, our views and our behaviors don't match and so if you can and, and it takes you've got to do this sensitively because again if people feel caught out or backed into a corner then they'll just dig their heels in but if you can show that you know who someone is is not what they're doing it's amazing how they'll often adjust their behavior, okay, rather than their beliefs. And so this notion of, you know, when it comes to like reminding people of who they are, I love there was some research done by a guy named um, Norbert Schwartz, and he's a psychologist based in Germany. And he basically, in, in part of his experiments, he got people to recall times they were. So for instance, flexible, open, um, caring, generous, kind. And so he said, if you could get people between, you know, to list three to five times they were those things, and then present them with an idea that they may have otherwise found confronting, they were far more open or likely to consider it if they'd started with this notion of, 
what I actually, what I am like, I am someone who is, and then fill in the blanks. What he found though is if you ask them to, do, to list too many incidences of that, it actually does the opposite. So if you ask them to, to list eight or 10, if they've listed six or seven, but they haven't listed the last one or two, that becomes evidence that actually, no, I'm not really as open-minded as I thought I was. So the number of times is sort of important. I'm just flipping between leader and parent here, as I often do with this podcast, because, you know, they're the yeah. two biggest influences. Oh, and yeah. the influence you have over yourself. Yeah. Flipping between these spaces and just that as a simple task to ask yeah. your child, like, okay, can you give me a, just just one time? When was the, you know, one time you could think of when you were super kind to somebody? Yeah. And you felt really proud of how kind you are. Like to re-remind people, I've actually got a sticker on my fridge. Yep. And I can't remember the exact words, but it's something like, you know, the job of love is not to point out what someone is not. It's to remind them who they are. I love that. Good yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, Josh, my husband, he's he did it to me recently where I was parenting a certain way and it was a way that <laughs> I'll be kind to myself. It's a way that he knew did not meet my intention. That's <laughs> yes. the best way yeah. I can put it. Um, that I was not meeting my own expectations as a parent. And, you know, he sat me down at the end because you, you don't sit someone down when they're in it. Never a yep. good idea. Yep. And he sat me down like a, a day or two later and he said, I just want to talk about this situation. He was like, you know, I know that you hold this particular value really highly. And I know that you want this for our children. And I know that this is who you intend to be and how you intend to show up. And you are, you know, generally really consistent and rock solid with that. But yep. I just want to talk about this situation. What, what happened here? Cause it felt like you kind of deviated from there. Yeah. And you know, that just starting with a reminder of who I am or who I hope to be yep. helped me Firstly, that he acknowledged something positive before yep. jumping into something I could yep. definitely improve upon. Um, again, we go back to that empathy piece, right? Yep. Just having empathy enough for somebody to acknowledge where they come from. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, the world of parenting offers so many insights into how to do this stuff, really. And um, Jonah Berger in his book, um, I think it's The Catalyst is the book where he talks about this. He talks about guiding choices. So if you want to get people to choose an option, give them two or three options, choices where they can make the decision. Because if you give them what you'd like them to do, I mean, they're like, this is what needs to happen. And it's one choice, essentially. The first thing they'll do is look for all the reasons unconsciously why they don't agree or why they shouldn't have to, or it's not a good idea. Whereas the moment it's two or three options of a choice, firstly, there's agency and autonomy. Choice equals control. Um, and the moment we feel like we haven't got a degree of choice we feel like we're out of control that's when we will not change because people who feel like they're being bullied they can dig their heels in there's a, there's a fear of response and so giving two or three choices now means my thought is which of these is best as opposed to do i agree and so it starts to shift the whole focus of which 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 of these do i want to do and so you know, i mean in parenting that works a treat but i think when it comes to persuading people say in your world or in your team it's exactly the same principle you also talked about, um, when we're talking about choices, you've, you've talked about the paradox of choice before, yep. which is that if you give people choice, and this bit really struck me from the book, if you give people choice, you heighten the likelihood that they're going to do what you want them to do. Yeah. So the, the whole notion of having given them opt-outs actually almost guarantees that they're going to opt-in. Is that right? Yes. 
Yeah. So the best way to get someone to make a choice is to give them the choice to not do anything at all. In other words, give, give, them, a, give them an out. You know, give them an opt out and they're far more likely to opt in. Because I mean, there's this great quote that I came across that's in the book that um, someone's yes means nothing if they didn't have the option to say no. And so there's got to be that sense of autonomy and agency. I've got to be able to opt in. Um, you know, and this can be as simple as if you're making a request, say, look, I, com I completely understand if you don't want to do this or I haven't got time, but it'd be really helpful if you could. Like just, just, get, you know, just making the suggestion, but then taking it away a bit and go, look, but it is your choice. It's completely up to you. And the importance of us to give people that sense of dignity and agency in any change we're, like, we're trying to get them to make. And ironically, the moment you take it away and give them agency, they're, they're more likely to make the constructive choice. And in the world of medicine, we've seen this for decades. If, if a patient has control over how much painkiller they give themselves on, on an IV drip, they use less than if someone else has control, okay? And so the fact is once you're in the driver's seat, you t it tends to bring the best out in us. And so I think the important theme of make sure every time you're trying to get people to change, they feel like they're in charge, they're in the driver's seat. Um, because the moment we feel that people are being forced that's when we will dig our heels and even if we actually think that what you're asking us to do is better or advantageous because i feel like i have to do it i don't want to and i think agency and autonomy are just essential another one of the strategies that you that you mentioned is this idea and this is very counterintuitive to me which actually the whole book is very counterintuitive to me which <laughs> It's kind of a high compliment because, you know, I work in the field, we work in the field of influence and impact yeah. and persuasion. And the idea that I read your book and I found these ideas to be not only true, but completely counterintuitive to how we usually go about it, yeah, wow. yep. I think speaks to how timely some of these ideas are. Um, this one was put your worst foot forward. Yes. Which again, yep. you know, you you read it and you almost there's a mild sense of panic which is why would i do that yep. <laughs> why yep. would i do that talk to me about that unpack that for us so this is all about um we talked about ethos before how do you build trust and credibility and a key way of doing that is by being vulnerable by being by being real and if you look at some of paul zach's work around what is it that releases oxytocin now you know when, when you're engaging with someone and they have that feeling like you just you trust them you click with that person if you look at what's actually happening neurobiologically it's the release of oxytocin which as we've heard isn't just in our brains but also our hearts as well and it's completely unconscious you know you walk away from those conversations like i just clicked with that person it's oxytocin that's involved that social bonding hormone and if you know what is it that most closely or most, most clearly releases oxytocin authenticity transparency vulnerability people who are just real and so this, you've got to be, you've got to trade carefully, of course. So you don't want to be um, real in a fake way. You know, when you see people who are just dialing up their authenticity, but it's a ploy, you know, and this is where I think corporations do this often when it comes to PR and they've got to trade very carefully because it can be manipulative or contrived. So, but if, if it's real, if you can just be honest about your doubts, your misgivings, even the points in your argument that aren't necessarily rock solid, it's amazing that the moment you lead with those, the other person almost jumps into the seat of wanting to argue your point for you, um, as opposed to looking for all the holes in your argument if you point them out first. And so there's some really interesting research done um, by a social psychologist named Kip Williams. And what he did is he looked at lawyers in court and he measured you know, the, the frequency of lawyers who actually lead with the points of their, of their case that were not necessarily proven or a little bit, uh, bit flaky or shaky. The lawyers that were open about the points where their, their case wasn't rock solid were far more likely to have the jury 
favor them and their views. Because it's sense that if, if, I, if I give you the whole picture, not just the things that agree with me, but the information that maybe is inconvenient or uncomfortable, you, you now sense that I've given you the whole picture. If it's only supporting or positive information, your natural instinct is to go, what are you not telling me here? What's the whole story? But also the trust factor goes up. Correct. You know, if somebody has the integrity to stand there and go, this, these are the things that I know to be true. And these are some things that, hey, we're not 100% on right now. And, and, yep. and I'm not quite sure about this, but you know what? I've given you the best that I have. Yep. That embodies a sense of trust yeah. with people, which then, you know, becomes compelling just in and of itself. But again, so counterintuitive to point out the things that are flawed yep. in the case that you're trying to make. Yeah. How is there a line there? I mean, I feel like there obviously is, is you don't sit there and just go, you know what? Yeah. You want to, you should change your mind about this. You should get on board. Quite frankly, I've got no idea what I'm doing, but yep. you know, where's the line there between pointing out too much and not doing it at all? Well, obviously you don't want to completely destroy your case, um, but you want to, obviously the world is complex and nuanced and nothing is black and white. None of our ideas, no evidence is black and white. There are always gaps, things that we still haven't looked into yet. You know, I've got all this data that makes the point, but there are a few things that we still need to look at. But on balance, this is, we're pretty sure the evidence points to X, Y, or Z, and therefore we should X, Y, or Z. And not acknowledging, just acknowledging that we don't know everything actually makes the case for the stuff we do know stronger. So obviously you don't want to have the bulk of your case being, I'm not so sure about this, but trust me anyway. I mean, obviously you need to lead with yeah, the, the stuff that you lead with vulnerability, but also don't not to the point where you completely destroy your own argument. What you also need to do is probably then arm people with the, the tools and the skills to know what to do with that uncertainty. And so you say, look, there are things that we're not sure about. There are things that we don't have the answers on, but what I found in the past is, and then you give them a couple of tools for putting that stuff into perspective. But I think just the importance of being vulnerable and disclosure the whole thing of just leading with the stuff that you don't know is actually incredibly powerful and in the world of rhetoric this used to be called dubitatio that was actually the classical word for this was basically expressing doubt that you know i, I don't have all the answers i'm not across everything but what i do know is and it's amazing how that just sets a posture of of great trust and credibility mm. Another one, while we're diving into some practical tools here, another one that I loved was making principles personal. Yeah. Yep. Again, you know, divorcing from the more logic, the more stats, the more impersonal I can make this, yep. the more com compelling it's going to be. And also this feeling of if I make it personal, it loses some credibility somehow Yeah. because I've just yep. made it, I've just made it personal and it's not yep. a stat or a statistic or any of the things we yeah. usually think make us more credible. Can you give yep. some examples of how you can put that principle into practice of making it personal? Yeah, well, so much of this is about letting people feel the emotions associated with truth. You know, if you want them to get on board with an idea, you can give them, again, evidence and logic, but often it's the, the stuff that intuitively people feel like, oh, yeah, I, I can see that, that resonates with me at a deep level. And there's a great story in 1956. So Nikita Khrushchev was speaking at a function and there was a heckler in the crowd and he spoke up and said, you know, you're, you're a colleague of Stalin's. Why didn't you try to stop him? And Khrushchev just shot a look around the room. You know, there's this icy silence descended and he snarled. Who said that? And no one moved. No one raised their hand. And there was silence, this awkward, dreadful silence. And he said, and now you know why I didn't speak up. And everyone in the room suddenly knew what it felt like 
to have to be put on the spot and potentially punished or shamed if you dissented. And in that moment, nothing else had to be said. The point was made. Everyone got the feeling, the instinctive gut feeling for what it was like to be the person in Stalin's crazy orbit, you know, where if, if you happened to speak at the wrong time, you were gone. And so there's that sense of the, the making it personal, you know, that, that made the point. And um, the, the interesting thing, though, when it comes to making principles personal is that empathy, which is essentially what this is about, empathy doesn't scale well. Um, and I think, in fact, it was Stalin who said, you know, one, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. And I'm like, it's, it's callous and it's cold, but it's, it's true. And Mother Teresa said the same thing. Like, if I look at the masses, I'll never act, but if I look at the one, I will. And so when it comes to trying to make principles personal, make the scope as narrow and small as possible. One story one person's vantage point, not a whole lot of stories or information. The best way to make this is to essentially put yourself in the shoes of someone else and one other person. If that person is you sharing your story, or like, and you see this in charity appeals and there's lots of really good research on this, you'll get far more donations if you tell one person's story about death or poverty or deprivation than a story of a village or even a group of five people. You know, but empathy doesn't scale well. So make principles personal by making it all about one story or just a couple of stories so that you are engaging people's emotions. And again, Zoe Chance tells this great story in her book of a Brazilian um, billionaire who um, made an announcement to the media in Brazil that he was going to bury his $500,000 Bentley. And as you can imagine, everyone's like, like, why? And he said, oh, I want to channel the pharaohs from Egypt and bury my treasure with me. And now, like, it was just a crazy thing. And on the day, there were helicopters buzzing overhead. The media had all assembled to watch him bury his Bentley in his backyard. And it just, you know, there was, as you can imagine, so much pushback about how wasteful and reckless this was. And um, as the car was being lowered into the ground, he asked everything to stop. All proceedings halt. He walked, he got all the press to come into his mansion. And then he had a, like a press conference, basically. And he said, you know, you might have thought it was crazy for me to, to bury a $500,000 car in my backyard. And it was. But he said, you know, every day, we are burying something far more valuable than that and no one's talking about it. And then he wanted to talk about an appeal to organ donation. Now in the next month, organ donation in Brazil jumped 32% because all of a sudden it was visceral. It was tangible. You can make the logical appeals for organ donation, but he did it in a way that was bizarre enough to get attention. But people suddenly went, gosh, a $500,000 car, if that's valuable, how much more valuable is my liver or my heart? Or, you know, it's, it's just, it made the point without having to resort to logic. And just, you know, drilling that down to a, a really practical sense, you know, just telling one story. You know, yep. if you're trying to change someone's mind, pick a person, a story, yep. use their name, you know, yep. make it real, make it, make it tangible rather than just, you know, stats tell us, study show. Absolutely. Yep. There's this beautiful example, um, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, and I know you mention it in the book, at the Thai Health Authority oh, yeah, and their yeah. anti-smoking campaign. Can you just, I, I'd love you to tell it again, because I think it is such a great example of what you're talking about. Yeah. And it was in Jonah Berger's book. I love this one. And he talked about, so the Thai smoking, the, the Thai health, um, the government agency responsible for health for years had tried to get people to quit smoking. They'd set up a hotline to, to get people to call and get support. And it wasn't getting much traction. And so one day they sent a whole lot of volunteers out into the community to ask smokers for a light. Now, I mean, that's globally, that's like the unspoken rule that if, so, if a smoker asks you for a light, you say yes. In this instance, they didn't. In fact, when the, when the volunteers who were out in the community asking for a light, 
asked smokers for that, they, they got given a lecture, you know, about how smoking's dangerous, it'll kill you, if you get cancer, they'll have to drill a hole in your throat. And the great irony is these smokers uh, you know, stopped dragging on their cigarette long enough to give the lecture and then went back to smoking. Now, the reason this happened is because of the nature of the volunteers they sent out. They sent out 10-year-old children. So, so I just want to stop you there. So they sent out 10-year-old yep. children to ask smokers, Correct. people who are smoking on the street, for a light for their own cigarette. Yeah. Can you give me a light? I want to have a smoke. And, of course, all these smokers said, you know, how, you can't, because you're a child, that would be reckless and wrong and dangerous. Don't you know the health hazards of smoking? And it's interesting. So all their 10-year-old children said was, you care about me, but what about yourself? And then they handed them a note. And it was a pre-printed note with the number for the helpline. And um, in the next month, the helpline figures jumped, I think, 45% with people who suddenly went, no, once they heard themselves giving the advice they, they needed to hear, it's like, who's the most persuasive person in, in any engagement? The person trying to be persuaded. You'll convince yourself of things that no one else can convince you of. And so once they heard come out of their mouths the very things that others have been trying to say to them for years, that the weight, the reality of that advice and those words became real. And even months and months later, I think that the call centre was still getting you know, upwards of 25, 30% higher call volumes because this struck such a chord. It put into perspective, into context, the issue of smoking. It wasn't just about whether you should or shouldn't. It wasn't about the stats and the data. It was suddenly you saw a child and said, what advice would I give to a child? Well, this is the advice. Why wouldn't I give that advice to myself? And it just flipped the whole discussion. Mm. What's the driver there? Like, how do we harness that? Because that's such a powerful inclination. Um, and it feels like if we can figure out how to harness that, essentially to be able to take our own advice on things, yep. then again, you know, that that idea of there's how we influence others and there's how we influence ourselves. Yep. How do we yep. harness that instinct? One of the really um, lovely examples I came across in the book was this idea of, of seeking the third story. So if you're ever engaging with someone and there's you're butting heads and there's an argument or a debate rather than, I mean, that's always two sides. And there are, we're told there's two sides to every story and there are. The question is, what's the third side? And the third side would be the retelling of this scenario or situation or impasse told by the person who was removed from it, who had an objective viewpoint. And if you ask both parties to tell the third story, how would someone outside of the situation describe what we're talking about? It's funny how that just changes the conversation because it, we're now in, it's not a battle of me versus you. It's like, actually, let's try and see how someone else would see the situation and see that maybe your perspective does have, have some merit and so does mine, that it's not just a binary battle. And I think that's, that's one of the important things is, is empathy and making principles personal is about realising that human beings are not so simple and two-dimensional, that there is nuance and there is complexity and trying to get people to feel that. That's often the very thing that primes you or gets your your mind and your heart ready or willing to consider alternatives is, is when you see that issues in life is complex and not two-dimensional. I think the third story was a really good way of doing just that, just trying to get people to see beyond my perspective versus yours. In fact, hearing two sides of any debate, that's that's part of the polarisation problem. In fact, there's a, a, a thing called the, the Human Conversations Lab at Columbia University um, and they actually measure in debates what works in changing people's perspectives. They, it's a basically a debating unit and they just throw issues at people and they have to debate them and then they have to determine at the end of the debate whether minds were changed or not. And over the years, so the guy who runs this, um, he's measured what actually works in shifting debates and the thing they found most effective is that they get people to read an article about an unrelated issue to which they're about to debate 
And the article goes to great lengths to show how nuanced and complex issues and life is. And the moment people go in that frame that the issues are no longer two-sided, that there's multiple sides, multiple perspectives. In fact, Adam Grant talks about you know, the idea of a prism rather than just a lens that goes two ways. The whole conversation changes because it shifts his view from life being simple and a battle between you and I, the battle of the wills, it becomes a case of recognizing nuance. That tool, you can actually, that's a very practical tool to be able to say to somebody, like, how would somebody else tell this story? Yeah. You know, this situation, how might somebody else tell it? Somebody who isn't in it, someone who doesn't have the yeah. same triggers. Yep. And also ask yourself, how would somebody else describe what just happened there who didn't yep. have the full story? Yep. Why, you know, we're talking, we're talking about persuasion here and we're talking about respectful persuasion and we're talking about empathetic persuasion, which, you know, I know that you are very solid on this, the difference between persuasion and force. Yeah. A big question that comes up for me, which I'm sure comes up for a lot of people, which is, can't we just incentivize our way out of this? <laughs> yeah. Like, isn't that just like a carrot big enough that you can, it's the lazy part where you're like, yeah. oh, we could do all this convincing, or we could just offer a big enough incentive so that people are just convinced whether they're really convinced or not, they just want the carrot. Yep. Talk to, talk to me about that, because I think that in a lot of organizations and as parents and as leaders, often we can be um, seduced by the yep. idea of the big enough carrot. Yeah, I mean, we typically go to that, don't we? I mean, it goes to back that, that theme of we tend to coax or we coerce or we convince when it comes to trying to change people. And the coaxing one, trying to just get people to do it because if they do, there'll be a benefit for them. That only works as long as the incentive exists, which is tiring and costly and requires constant maintenance. And the moment the incentive changes or the leader who's incentivizing moves on, everything reverts. And so it's change you've got to keep propping up, which is which is a very difficult way to maintain a change agenda. And so you can do that and it'll achieve short-term change, but it's unlikely anyone's view or perspective is, is, is actually changed in the process. And so the most sustainable way to see change actually stick is to shift people's viewpoints for them to own that change, even if there's no incentive. Um, and so you tend to see that like that either the stick or the carrot approach, both can work in the short term, but in, in, even in terms of sticks, the stick only works as long as the, 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 the threat or the fear of threat exists. The moment it's removed, everyone just reverts back to where they were. So yes, change that is sustainable, it's gotta be a hearts and minds thing. The moment it's about carrots or sticks, it's gotta require constant maintenance. Um, and I love that insight from um, Dale Carnegie. He said, a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. And it's sort of a bit hokey and rhymy, but it's true. You know, this idea of if you feel convinced because you've had to, or you've been incentivized, it's unlikely that your mind has been changed at all. Mm. So the, the carrot and the stick only work for as long as the carrot or the stick exist, which again, speaks to that idea of force, right? You can only force things while you're in the room. As soon as you walk away, it's like a house built of sticks. It blows over and you have to go back and rebuild it again. Um, what are you struggling to change your mind about at the moment? Oh, that's a great question. I think one of the things I've been trying to wrestle with is around sort of technology and stuff is some of the roles of things like the metaverse and VR, I'm still struggling to figure out where the substance in that is. So last year I like did a whole lot of research and work about the metaverse and put a lot of energy into it. 
And I think we've seen some of that come to pass, some of that not. And so I'm trying to, at this stage, figure out where does the world, where is the world heading from that perspective? And I'm now at a point where to change my mind and see the metaverse may not be everything it was going to be cracked up to be. Well, it might be a little bit embarrassing. Like there could be that sense that I, you know, I made some really public statements and did a lot of stuff in the media about you know, where this is heading and what it's going to mean. I think what we're seeing at the moment is the timelines are probably the thing that's different. It's, it's still going to happen, this idea of moving toward virtual worlds and using you know, VR and augmented reality in education and business. But I think it's just going to take longer to become a thing than I initially thought. And so, I'm, yeah, I think that's the thing I'm wrestling with at the moment is from a professional perspective, just, you know, what, what that looks like because I've made some really bold claims. And now I think we've seen that hype bubble begin to deflate. And so we've got to sort of figure out where the substance in that change is. So I'm, pr I'm probably in that point where I'm trying to reevaluate some of the things that I thought last year, particularly when it comes to technology. I think it's easy to underestimate the, the humility and courage that comes with that. Yeah. When, you're, when you make very public predictions or you make very public um, assertions. And when you, you know, I talk a lot on this podcast about having a mindset of certainty, which is giving the best that you have. Yep. in that moment, contributing the best that you have in that moment and not worrying about what if something changes. Yeah. Because when something changes, so will you, hopefully. Yep. And then you yep. can own that change and change course. Yeah. And I think that it takes a lot of courage. I know that it takes a lot of courage to do that and for you to do it so publicly as well. How do you, how do you handle that? Do you, how do you backtrack? in a sense, in a, you know, a beautiful, conscious way. I think it's giving yourself the grace to change your mind. You know, as we said before, that feel felt found mode of like, I felt one way. Okay. I, what I've found is that things have changed and I've had to adjust accordingly. And I think the beauty of that is it gives other people permission to do the same thing. And so being vulnerable and leading with vulnerability around the things you've gotten wrong in the past, it's a bit like when we talk about psychological safety for people taking risks and failing fast in organizations, the best way to do that is for a leader to acknowledge the things they've failed at and the times that, that they've missed the mark. I think when it comes to getting people to be intellectually flexible, it's also acknowledging the times that you, you have got it wrong or you held on to a viewpoint that you just you held on to a little bit too long. Um, and you look back and you regret having been so stubborn. And I think just acknowledging that we're all in that boat and that we're all prone to it. I think that's first, firstly, it gives you a pattern for knowing next time you get mentally stuck. I know what to do because I've seen this before. I've seen this play out. Um, and the faster I get to the point where I'm open, willing, willing to reconsider my beliefs, the better, but also by being open and vulnerable with others, it encourages them to do the same thing. Mm. Knowing yourself, just to know yourself. I mean, I know, I know that when I become unsure, I speed up. Yeah, which is wow. the least useful thing to do. You know, as soon as I become slightly nervous or unsure of a direction yep. or a position or an outcome, I, I fill up that gap of uncertainty yep. with speed. I'll just run in the direction I had chosen faster because if yep. I get there fast, <laughs> you know, the, the target won't change if I get there faster. Yep. And yep. to notice your tells, what do you do when you become uncertain? What do you do when you start to think that you might be wrong? What do you do yeah. when you feel yourself dig in and you don't know why? Like to yeah. notice your tells. Yeah. And then let's take yeah. back. Go slowly. Yeah. I love that idea of knowing your tells. I probably do the speed thing as well, actually, I reckon. 
but also I think I just notice physically. I, I, I notice this, this feeling in the back of my neck when I start to get to that point where I'll go into battle mode. It's like the, the hackles go up. And so I've found at, at multiple points now when I feel that, I stop. I don't speak. Particularly if, if I'm asked to make, make a call or share an opinion or contribute to a conversation. And I've actually, I've, I've found this even like on television, I'll be doing an interview live and the hosts often want the juicy stuff. They want you to talk about something controversial and a bit, a, a bit messy. And I'll feel the hackles go up and, and like, it's my warning sign to shut up. Do not say it. And because it's often that tribal sense, I want to say something because I want to make a point and I want to, I want to you know, you know, put my stake in the ground and say, this is what I think to be true. Whereas actually I, I've, 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 I've slipped out of student mode, okay, into preacher mode, or I've slipped into the mode of, of, of being judgmental or being a critic rather than a student and being open. And I just know when the moment I lose that sense of humility and I notice in my posture and particularly that the hackles feeling, I know to stop and ask some more questions. And I love, there's this beautiful um, quote that I often think of in these moments that, um, an enemy is a person's story that we haven't yet heard. And I'm like, I just try and stop myself whenever I find that I want to just have an argument, really get into someone who's holding a view that I think is reckless or silly or uninformed. I'm like, what do I not understand? I need to ask some more questions. And I think that's probably the thing, particularly when you've got my temperament, which is you know, on all the temperament things, I'm like, I'm judgment. I'm like, I'm certain. I know if I know what's true. And and my wife is the opposite. She's like, she's never quite sure. And so Haley will always ask more questions and never want to, never want to make a, a declaration. I'm like, no, this is how it is. And she's like, but is it really? So like the beauty of that is like, she's a good counterbalance, but also I know to stop and go, okay, what do I, what have I not asked? What's the side of this coin that I've not looked at? Um, and sometimes that's just annoying because you want to make you, you want to make a case, you want to have an argument, you want to get into it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I've learned not to do. But it feels so. It, yeah, it feels so good to be right. No, it feels so good to feel right. Yeah, it feels good that's exactly to feel it. right. Because there are so many things that we are not sure about in this world. There are so many things that we are unsure, confused, overwhelmed, uncertain about. That when we find something we actually have certainty around, it feels good just to hold onto it because you know it's like a rock to hold onto, but it's also the rock that will sink us and our relationships and our ability to evolve. Yep. You finished the book with this beautiful story um, about the Christmas Day truce oh, yes. in, yep. in the First World War. I'd love you to share that story because I think that it speaks more so than I can to the importance of meeting people halfway, of our ability to be able to come together in discourse Yep. debate and change it to be will change others minds but be willing to be changed yes yep. um, i'd love you to tell it yeah and i love the story because it draws together so much of i think what we need to do in modern society you know and i think one of the biggest challenges we've got right now is we, we tend to have this idea that um an opponent is an enemy and we've got to subdue them we've got to win at all costs and we've, we've shifted in that notion where debate and argument is all about a battle of the wills and a battle for dominance. And that's historically so different to what argument and debate was in, in antiquity and to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And we've sort of got to go back to that. And I think this story makes the point beautifully because it's, it's this moment uh, okay, on the fields of Flanders where you've got you know, two troops bogged down in trenches. They hadn't moved in months. Like the, the lines had not changed. So they were getting fed up, they were tired, but against the backdrop of human misery, they, they were being conditioned to hate the other side. 
they weren't just opponents, they were enemies. And so the, the Allied soldiers were, were told all sorts of things, like German soldiers used to uh, melt down children to make soap. You know, this was like this, these, these crazy things that was propaganda to make them hate the enemy. And the, the Germans have been told very similar things about the Allied soldiers. There was such incredible bitterness against their rivals. And so interestingly, what started to change? And it all started with singing, which is sort of lovely in itself. So on, on Christmas Eve, 1914, some of the troops were singing Christmas carols. And of course, the other side, because they were in many cases only a few hundred um, feet away from each other in the trenches, they heard the Christmas carol. So one side would sing a carol, and the other side would sing the same Christmas carol in their own language. And then at each point, they would sort of basically trade Christmas carols. And after each performance, you know, each side would applaud the other side. And eventually, this became a bit of a game. And after a couple of hours of this occurring, and I can, you can imagine that the confidence or the courage required to do this, one of the soldiers hurled himself over the edge of the trench and started walking in no man's land to the middle of no man's land, which was you know, a godforsaken horrible place. And then a soldier from the other side did the same thing. The bitterness had broken down. And eventually hundreds, thousands of soldiers that night, in fact, over two thirds of the, of the front, climbed up over their trenches and met in the middle. And they played soccer, they traded stories, they, they cooked food, they buried the dead, they became human with each other. They met in the middle. And I mean, it's interesting, like that what changed was they realized that actually at the core of it, they were still, they were, they were each human. They weren't so different as they thought, and they were willing to meet in the middle, find that common ground. And I think that's what we need to do. And that, that sense of we're so entrenched in tribal beliefs and bitterness toward our rivals and opponents are our enemies, and it's all about winning at all costs. And it's like, how do we actually sort of come to the middle, meet each other in, middle, in the middle, learn from each other. I think that's, that's where human nature flourishes. And that's sort of what we've got to relearn the skill of doing, I reckon. And I think that was one of the biggest things that I got from reading your book and also from knowing you, which is that, you know, we can approach persuasion and influence respectfully. We can approach it with the skills and the tools that work, but in doing so, when we seek to change someone else, we also need to be in a position where we ourselves are willing to change also, yeah. where we meet yep. in the middle. Thank you. If anyone who hasn't or hasn't seen the book yet, I know that it is so close to being launched. Tell me what's, what is the launch date and where, where can people find Mindstuck? Which, yeah, we should be launching in early October. So around October 3rd will be the launch. Um, so It'll be available anywhere books are, so Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, it'll be available on my website, so michaelmcqueen.net, and there'll be a website there and also the website mindstuck.net um, for the book. So, yeah, it'll be available, I think, also in all the forms, so audio and ebook and paperback as well. well. If anyone's looking for a modern day toolkit for influence, I learnt. I learned a lot and yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for your time thank you. and for all the research that you did to pull this together. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. It's always a joy. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. 
You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.